Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Alrighty, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett, and I. I'm the host. This is the this is the show. Welcome aboard. So the guest today, Stelios Papadopoulos. What do we know about Stelios? Well, he is a longstanding figure in this industry. He's done everything from be a biotech analyst back before that was even really a thing. He's been an investment banker. He's been a founder of companies. Um, he's the current chairman of the board at Biogen. And uh, yeah, we talked about all that in this podcast. We also talked about well, him coming to America from Greece. His his uh, his time as a '60s campus radical. Uh, when he when he first got to the U.S., um, we talked about how the industry has changed. We talked about how New York has changed. He's lived in New York a long time. Uh, and there's something else we did. We talked about he, he was setting himself up to be a biotech analyst, and he realized that he had the science. That wasn't an issue. He had a Ph.D., but he wasn't sure how he would convince others that he knew business well enough to analyze this sector. So he went to NYU and got an MBA. Now, the industry's grown a lot since then. It's changed a lot, and there are programs that can help scientists pick up business acumen. And Johns Hopkins University has one of those. They have a Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Program. If you go full-time, you can be done in a year. Part-time, I think the average time to completion is two years. The, the curriculum is a mix of business and science. Uh, for more information, go to enterprise.jhu.edu. Now, what was that? That was an ad. We're a sponsored podcast now. Johns Hopkins University is our sponsor. Okay, so that's that. Here it is, your first-rounders podcast with Stelios Papadopoulos. So, you know, I, I know... Um, well, here's what I don't actually know. I don't know where you were born. So, we are. Yeah, we're on. Okay. Yeah. I was born in uh, Thessaloniki in Greece. Well, I knew Greece, Okay. So Thessaloniki is the second largest city of Greece, so I grew up very much in a city environment. Which means what? Which means, um, what did your parents do, for instance? Uh, nothing much that's uh, remarkable or related to what I'm doing. My father was a small-time merchant, and my mother was a housewife. Merchant, what did he, what did he sell? <laughs> Spices. Really? So he had like a spice Mostly, cart? No, or a... no, 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 no. Mostly he was a... Uh, in the wholesale business of spices, but after define wholesale, um, he would buy, let's say, a um, large container of pepper mm-hmm. from the importers, let's say 100 kilos, and then subdivide this into smaller portions and sell to grocery stores, small corner grocery stores, let's say a kilo at a time, and then they would sell it to housewives. Yeah. So he was a little intermediate. He's uh, sort of the middleman. Yeah. 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 So he's a distributor kind of, really. Uh, sort of, yeah. And he would provide supplies of a variety of goods, including spices, but mostly spices, to it's, grocery stores. And you're, you're growing up, you know, did you think anything about that for a career? I mean, what did you think you might want to do when you were, when you were a boy? Um, I always thought I would be doing something in... Uh, in letters, in sciences, in academia, in something, something having to do with education. Um, in part because uh, being educated was revered in Greece, and I was always a particularly good student. And in fact, I was probably the only very good student of my very extended family. 
So everybody looked up to me as the one who was going to do something meaningful and uh, uh, to bring pride to the family. So it wasn't even a choice. I knew I would just study a lot. We, now, exactly what, that changed all the time. Were you the oldest? Because I many interests. Yeah, I was not only the oldest of my brothers. I had two younger brothers. And I was oldest of the whole generation of cousins. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so do you think that that part of... Um you know, them looking to you to be the one to, um, you know, we'll say make it, was, was because of you being the oldest or just also because they already thought maybe that you were the sharpest? I think the latter. Hmm. I think they, it was clearly this, this will sound like bragging, but it's not. I mean, it's they, it was pretty clear from early on that I was the most gifted, so. But how? I mean, did, that you were doing well in school or your yes. father? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were excelling in school. Yeah, yeah. All right. So they thought, okay, well, he's going to be the one who's going to, as you said, value education and, and sort of make something. And, and, and you mean like lift the family up in that way? Or? Not necessarily. Lift the family up by bringing pride to the family, not financially or any, otherwise, uh, any other ways. Okay, so you're, you're growing up, you're doing well in school, and you don't really know what it is that you want to do. Uh, it's not that I did not know. Is that I changed my mind all the time based on stimuli. So you knew. You just... I just you, <laughs> kept on changing, yeah. yeah. So my first... When I was 12 or 13, I fell in love with language, and I wanted to be a poet and a writer and a philosopher. And then um, uh, I later fell in love with the sciences. So for a while, I wanted to become a chemical engineer because I thought it sounded good, and there weren't that many of them. But then I fell in love with physics, and I just wanted to become a physicist. Um, And I had seen a little... um, a video clip of Richard Feynman at Caltech uh-huh. playing the bonga drums. And then I read a little something about him, and I thought he was the coolest guy in the world, and I wanted to go to Caltech and be like him and <laughs> get a Nobel Prize in physics later on. Um, and um, so I wanted to become a physicist, no doubt about it. I had no way of coming to the United States. I knew of no way to get here. We suddenly had no financial means in the family to send me over. Um, but that was your plan? All along well, you thought I wanted was, to go to school? It was a fantasy. Yeah. It was not a plan. Uh, so I I applied. I took the national exams. We don't apply in Greece. We take national exams. And I wanted to go to the physics school, but they wouldn't let me, my family and my school principals, because in Greece, especially in those days, education was perceived as a way to financial security. And a degree in physics would get you at best a job as a high school teacher. Uh-huh. And that was not perceived as a good thing. Whereas if I had to go to the National Polytechnic Institute, the National Technical University in Athens, and become an engineer, particularly an electrical engineer, I would have a very important desk job with a national power company and make very good salary and be a very good white-collar worker and ensure my financial future. And given what my scholastic record was, they were sure I would score well in the exams and get in. Yeah. And they all insisted that that's what I should do. And my father had died a couple of years before that, so I was the oldest, and I felt some sort of obligation and um, to, you know, to listen to the advice. So um, I changed the list of priorities on the application as they recommended, and I put electrical engineering first. So this is sort of for an undergraduate electrical engineering yeah. degree, yeah. yeah. But first yeah. off, your, fa- your father must not have been very old if you were the oldest son. He, was, he died in an accident. Oh, no. It was okay. unexpected. Um, and so I, you know, I, I did enter the technical university as an electrical engineer. <laughs> I didn't like it. And luckily, uh, in my first semester, um, somehow some information came my way about a potential scholarship in the U.S., and I applied, and I got it. And mid-year, I, I literally left in the middle of the night on December 31st of 1966 to come to the U.S., and I left by train to go to Paris because it was cheaper to fly from Paris, from yeah. Paris to New York than from Athens to New York. And so the for two things, so 
that meant you were then, you know, you said you felt some responsibility for your family after your father yeah. died, but then you're, you're leaving it. Was that hard? That was, that is, you, you touched upon a fascinating point that at the time I didn't think much about, but subsequently I came back to question myself and, and ask that question. And I, and I, the only explanation I have is that my desire to study physics and and have a great scientific career was so overwhelming that I was blinded. Yeah. It, it, it became just a very selfish thing. And, um, and, and I must say, my mother is an incredible woman and she understood, you know, what I needed, what I wanted, and she encouraged me intensely to yeah. leave. Yeah, but and, you're, you're also uh, 18 or 19? Yeah, I mean, 18. that that is the age to be selfish, right? I mean, that is the age where people well, try to go I mean, out. And... I have no excuse. Huh. I was selfish. And um, I, I look back and it's, uh, uh, yes, I did make the right decision in, in a way for me personally, but it was a selfish moment. Uh, I, I, I could have, in some ways, I should have stayed back and, and in a true Greek sense, I should have stayed back and taken care of the family. family I was yeah. the, I was the eldest. Yeah. Well, so but so you the, you were coming to NYU. No, 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 no. This organization that brought me here had different plans for me. They brought me, sent me to a small college in West Virginia. Um, so you flew to New York, and then that, that's where the scholarship was based or something? <laughs> yeah, the organization was based in New York, and they, then they took me down to West Virginia. And the plan was that I would go three years to this small college in West Virginia and then do two years at Columbia University in the engineering department and get a dual degree, an undergraduate uh, BS yeah. from the small college and a BSc, you know, Bachelor's in Engineering from Columbia and the misunderstanding and the dispute was that I wanted to come and study physics, not engineering. So uh, I had a little bit of a run-in with the... Once I figured out all that was going on with the scholarship people, and uh, I parted ways halfway through, and I abandoned the program. So they I flew stayed. you here. Did, did you go to West Virginia at all? Yeah, I did. You did, okay. Yeah, I did. So I went to that small college. Uh, it's called Bethany College in Bethany, West Virginia. Uh-huh. And I stayed there three and a half years, and I got a bachelor's degree in with a double major in physics and mathematics. And, uh, and that was, in some ways, an interesting experience because being so far away from New York, with, where a lot of Greek students were, I was yeah. thrown into no man's land, yeah. you know, with uh, just Americans. Yeah. Um, and I rapidly immersed myself into American culture so much so that in the late 60s, I became part of the student revolution movement. I became president of the student body of the college. I led marches and sit-ins. And then I revamped the college curriculum once I became president <laughs> <laughs> under the threat of burning down the college. What, when, you, when you're protesting, you're pro- pro- protesting what? The war? Protesting uh, the, the yeah, civil the, rights? This was the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, the yeah. whole Vietnam thing. Yeah. Mean, remember, Colombia was 68. Yeah. That was the year I was elected president of the student body. You know, Kent State, yeah. uh, SDS, all that stuff. Were, There's were a lot going on. Just yeah. happening. And uh, they were, and I had very long hair, and uh, you know, it, the administration was scared to death when I was elected because they thought I would burn the place down. It was a very conservative religious college. And I had no intention of doing any of that. I just wanted to revamp the curriculum. So I demanded student representatives in every college committee. They immediately said, sure. So I appointed myself to the curriculum committee and I proceeded to just modernize the curriculum. I insisted we modernize some. There were some silly rules like no beer on campus. Uh, the result was kids would drive yeah. to neighboring towns, get drunk, and there was a tragic case of uh, a nationally ranked swimmer from the college team who was paralyzed in an accident on the way back to school. So, like a good politician, I used that. That's yeah. a rallying cry. Yeah. They said, that's ridiculous. You know, we, we just... So we changed that, and they allowed the little pub to open. It was a very small town on campus, and just things of that sort. Huh, interesting. But, uh, 
It was fascinating. And I also started a soccer team because they didn't have one. And I thought it was a major omission. Yeah, of course, right. And, I mean, you, uh, you must have played they, that growing up. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, the team became actually quite good. I think at some point in the 70s, they won the national championship in uh, uh, NCAA Division Three. That's what the school was, Division Three. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. was just more, a thousand yeah. students, you know. Yeah. But uh, my pride is that I still hold the record for most goals scored in a game from 1968. How, how many? Six. Six? They haven't broken that. Oh, they, they cannot break it because I was like day and night. I was demonstrably better than anybody else yeah. in the team and the whole league in those days. Yeah. Uh, now they're all very good. Yeah. So it's all distributed. It's very hard to score that Six many goals. Six goals in a game. Yeah, yeah by of course. One yeah. Person. yeah, amazing. Yeah, you know, so... Um, uh, but I play... I go back in some reunions and I play with them. I still say, my God, look at this old guy. He can still play. <laughs> he must have been pretty good. He's, and you're uh, like, I was. You should see the records. Go check the yeah. record books. He scored six goals. Um, well, okay, so then... So then, so then I, I went there and I stayed, uh, as I said, three and a half years. And then I went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, I didn't know that. In Pittsburgh. Yeah, in Pittsburgh, in physics. Uh, stayed a year and... Uh, and I was very much under the influence um, at the time of uh, all the political activity. And um, there was a widespread guilt amongst many of us in the hard sciences that we were part of the military-industrial complex. That's what it used to be called then. And a lot of the work in research in physics was supported by the Department of Defense yep. by the Army and other places. And it, was, it wasn't sitting right with me. Um, and I liked physics quite a bit. Uh, didn't want to abandon it altogether. So I wanted to find a compromise. So I, I decided to do biophysics. I thought that'd be an interesting middle ground. And I also concluded that to do meaningful work, you need to be in a university that does have a medical school. Uh, otherwise, it's probably just very theoretical. Uh-huh. And Carnegie Mellon did not. That's an excellent school. Yeah. And um, NYU at the time was launching, you know, a new program in biophysics um, or the physics department with opportunity to research all throughout the university. Um, I applied to transfer. They accepted me immediately. And I liked New York all the time. I had a lot of friends here, yeah. a lot of Greek students. And I moved to New York the following year, you know, physics went on, did a full physics master's degree, then moved physically while still a physics student to the medical school, did another two years of medical school curriculum in terms of basic biology classes to get ready, and then worked on my thesis um, in you know, my research work in structural biology, uh, which was very quantitative. It was, you know, trying to refine images of biological specimens using sophisticated physics techniques and computer programming. Uh-huh. So it was it was not for a biologist to do, but the problem was biological. So it was a good marriage of the disciplines. And that brings us to the next iteration of... of so that, of, you're a PhD in biophysics at that point, right? Yeah, my After PhD, I got my PhD in 1980. Yeah. And uh, at that point couple of things that happened. Uh, in the mid-70s, the great discoveries that laid the foundation of the biotech industry had happened. Uh, I knew of them peripherally uh-huh. from colleagues in the department, but not substantively because I was not a cell biologist or molecular biologist, yeah. hardcore. Yeah. Uh, so I, can, I didn't quite comprehend the significance of that at that time, of those discoveries. Um, but something I remember vividly the day uh, that it happened, it was shortly after I had finished my, I had my title defense of my PhD, and I was still in the Department of Cell Biology at NYU Medical School doing some mop-up work and contemplating which positions to take mm-hmm. as a postdoc. And I walked down the hall, and I walked into a lab, and I was, it was like the best of times because I'd finished my PhD. And for a graduate student, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a big deal because 
there's nothing worse if you go on for three, four, five, six years, and it's the greatest time of uncertainty in your life because it's not like you take a class, take an exam, you're done, on to the next one. It's this open-ended thing, and you always worry as a grad student you will be found out one day that you just don't know everything. <laughs> you know, there's that paper you should know about yeah. that you haven't read. Yeah. And, and another one, and then you'll do your defense, and then someone said, well, you know, how about uh, the work of so-and-so that should be quite relevant here, and you draw a blank, mm -hmm. because you never read that paper, and how dare you not have read that paper. Uh, so now well, I'm happy. I got Now I'm Dr. Papadopoulos. I'm done. And on to the next thing. Of course, there's now the fear of what next, yeah. but still hadn't, hadn't um, settled in. I walk into the lab and I saw a bunch of the guys, you know, those little cork boards in the lab with the pin pictures of babies yeah. and, and dogs and other things. Yeah. And they were very animated talking about things. And the the subject was a little piece of newspaper from the New York Times about the IPO of Genentech. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how excited these academic scientists were about a Wall Street event. And, you know, most academic scientists are so arrogant and so self-centered and possessed by the importance of their work, they would never think anything other than their own work or work in their field is important. Uh -huh. So for them to be so excited about that, I thought, that must mean something. And it connected immediately in my mind in the following sense. Um, in the summer of 79, I got married a year prior to that. And uh, my wife was a medical student, so we met in school. I was a grad student, she was a medical student, and uh, she was just as poor as I was. So for the summer between first and second year of medical school, she had taken a temp job. And the agency had placed her at Merrill Lynch, not far from here. Uh -huh. You know, it would be uh, the the one Liberty Plaza, the black building. Yep. Um, and totally by coincidence, uh, she was assigned to work for the drug analyst at Merrill Lynch. And um, after a couple of weeks of work, said to me, I've got a job for you. That's what you should do once you get your PhD. You should be an analyst because the guy I work for has a PhD in organic chemistry and a law degree. And all he does is he tells stories about drug companies and already he's asked me to write one myself. says, you can do that. You know, you're smart. You understand science, and you can describe things. So yeah. that's what you should do. And I like said in the back of my mind. I didn't think about it until a year later when I see this and I say, that's it. That's what I should do. I should be like him. But for this new breed of company, they're very much science-driven. I said, I should become a biotech analyst. It was one of these light bulb moments. And I thought about it. Which, I mean, they didn't really exist then. No, no. but no, no, I mean, when, you're, when your wife was doing it, it was, no, it was, was no for pharma companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was no biotech industry, yeah. Uh, even, you know, when the first few biotech companies had IPOs, to the extent they were being covered, the firms would say, okay, you. Uh, I used to, the joke I used to make the, is that the firms would say, okay, who had high school biology? Who is the least busy? Okay, who is the least important person? Okay, you're going to be the biotech analyst now. So for the early 80s, these are the hotspots guys that covered biotech stocks by and large. Yeah. Not all of them, yeah. but you know, it was like opportunistic coverage just to have somebody on record to write the report. Um, so I got that idea. I said, okay, that's what I should do. So I think it percolated for a few weeks, two, three weeks. And I said, now, wait a second. How do I go about doing this? How do I convince anybody that this is the right thing to do? I said, I can probably convince them that I know science. I have a PhD. Yeah. Okay. How do I convince them that I also understand business? I said, on substance, I think I do because, you know, I grew up in a business household in Greece and all along was just the age of nine in the summers and then later on, even throughout the year, I'd go help out my father. Yeah. So I could transact. I could yeah. work. And then in, in the U.S. from day one, I did every odd job you can imagine to support myself. Did you drive you know. a cab for a while? Yeah, I went a little taxi business, yeah, my <laughs> friends and I. You mean you bought a medallion, the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. we set up a little taxi business. My ex-partner, 
who stayed with the business is a very wealthy man now. I would have been, I would have done better if I stayed with the taxi yeah, no business. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> Particularly pre-Uber. Right. Um, uh, you know, waiter who sold ice cream Central Park. We did everything just, you know, to stay alive. So I, I, had, I thought I understood how to do business, but I also understood that I could not convince anyone formally that not how to be a waiter in a restaurant was the same as being able to describe a business yeah. in a theoretical sense. And th- that was a legitimate point. I said, okay, that's fine. Maybe I should just go get an MBA. And so then I went to the chairman of my department where I was and I said, look, why don't we do this? I'll stay on. Uh, we'll construct. And he liked me. He was a wonderful man. And he liked me quite a bit. I said, here's what I want to do. I'll stay here. Um, I'll continue teaching because I was teaching cell biology and help out of the department a bit. And um, uh, we will um, uh, we'll go to business school as well. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm not going to be here forever, but uh, at least you know three or four years. And then we'll see what happens. And he was a wonderful, extremely thoughtful man, great scientist, very supportive. Um, so we structured a job, and uh, I did this more than full-time. And went to NYU at night, got an MBA uh, by 1984. And for my MBA thesis, I put together a document that was a review of the biotech industry and a guide on how to invest in biotech stocks. And I would take this around and convince people to hire me, not realizing at the time, since I had really no access to anybody, that there was no real body of evidence suggesting to anybody on Wall Street that they should invest in people like me. Yeah. Uh, finally, and uh, there's a group of us who came into Wall Street starting right around, I was one of the first couple of people of that uh, generation, late 84, 85 through 86, maybe 10 of us, uh, all pretty much the same phenotype. Uh, MDs or PhDs with MBAs uh, as firms said, yeah, maybe we should give it a try. And uh, they brought us in and we were the first like legitimate group of dedicated people to cover biotech stocks. And uh, after much effort and knocking on many doors, most of them sort of like inappropriate doors where I didn't get much response. Uh, but I finally got lucky and uh, I got a job at Donaldson, Lefkin, and John Rett, which was a great firm at the time, to be their biotech analyst. And I got started there in 85. So then <clears throat> how many reports are you writing then? Are you writing one a, one a week, one, one a day? No, no, no. No, it took me a few months to put an industry piece together, comprehensive report. A comprehensive one, right, okay. To describe the sector. And then uh, it was not easy writing the reports because you know, describing those companies... You know, was not trivial. My first recommendation was integrated genetics, which actually did very well for me in the space of time that I covered it. Uh, I then recommended Amgen. I then recommended Biogen. It's a good move. Yeah. And uh, I'm trying to remember which one I recommended next, but I didn't last very long at, uh, at DLJ because uh, Drexel came calling and Drexel pursued me intensely for three months and uh, ended up offering me about five times what I was making at DLJ. And within a year after I started DLJ, you know, I moved to Drexel. Yeah. For, uh, you know, if you read the sort of like Wall Street letters and, you know, portfolio letters and all that, I was, I was labeled the million-dollar baby you know, in those things for the for the move. It was in 86. It was still the time of largesse of Drexel, yeah. the glory days of Milken. So I moved to Drexel, and I recommend it again. Uh, I remember I was, um, I moved in August of 86, and I got a very bad um, um, viral infection of sorts. I was coughing. I was, I was pretty sick. I got to work two, three, four days a week or so. Then I just was sick. And, I, I, and then and then some of the stocks got hit badly. So I remember going to work 
must have been early September, and like half dead. And I said, this is an act of God. I said, these stocks have been hit for no good reason. So I'm rising from the dead to come here and recommend them because there's a great opportunity to get into those stocks. And I recommended so like Unmas, Amgen, Biogen, Immunex, Chiron, a bunch of them at very low prices. Right, because they'd just been hit. Yeah, yeah, for no good reason. I mean, yeah. In those days, there was a huge inefficiency because people didn't understand those stocks. So there was a lot of emotional reaction up and down. Yeah, they'd rise and you fall. Could and you could just be, with a little bit of knowledge, you could make money just being contrarian to to general market sentiment that was just mostly panic or enthusiasm, unwarranted both ways. But let, let me ask you this. When when you're recommending these companies, it's to the bank or the bank's clients or both? Well, to the bank's clients, yeah, not the okay. bank. The bank was not taking proprietary positions. I would go to the sales force and describe the reasons why the stock was a good buy. Then I would then pick up the phone and call yeah. the fund managers and, and the analysts of the funds and as needed those would call me or I would call them directly and but it was really to service the clients yeah. of the of, of the investment bank um, and sure enough you know this I remember Amgen went into a mad dash after that just hitting milestone after milestone and doubled in six months it was a remarkable run and then all this stuff started happening at Drexel you know, with uh, Dennis Levine, and then Ivan Bosky, and by the spring of 1987, things got a little um, uh, disconcerting. I don't, I don't know this history, so yeah, they, they, uh... you're, you're too young. So what happened was, um, Dennis Levine was an investment banker who used to work at Merrill Lynch. While at Merrill Lynch, he did a number of insider trades ah, okay. uh, through brokers in Venezuela or whatever. I don't know. I don't remember the, the details anymore. He then moved to um, to Drexel, but the authorities tracked him down and uh, he was arrested. And, uh, you know, there was now a black mark on, um, uh, certainly on him and, and on, on Drexel. Firm, yeah. But nobody thought much about it because all this activity was while he was at Merrill Lynch. It was not implicated. Uh, the bigger picture was that uh, Mike Milken, Mike Milken had built uh, an enormous business in high yield bonds, primary issuance and trading, an extreme monopoly almost on Wall Street. Other firms couldn't even touch it. Uh, the strength in that market enabled Drexel to become a dominant force in the M and A business. Uh, and generated enormous profits for Drexel at the envy of other firms. Uh, the high-yield bond business was not well-regulated because it was a new business. And There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Regulation not been uh, set up to appropriately 
um, govern how all this activity would take place. And I think to a large extent, the looseness, the absence of regulation, human nature being what it is, yeah. as well as the envy of the other firms and seeing Drexel essentially disintermediate them from a big part of the business, all these things conspired together to make Drexel a target. And um, in November of 1986, uh, Ivan Boski, who was one of the raiders, was indicted uh, for some activities, and he implicated Drexel and Mike Milken in some stock parking violations, where basically he said, look, take some stock, hold on to it, they'll buy it back from you at some pre-agreed price, that's illegal. Uh, and the investigation started growing, and uh, we had just been at Drexel a short while, a whole bunch of us had come in from other firms, and we were getting nervous that may have been more to it than, than, than just that. Yeah. As it turned out, there was a lot more to it. Yeah. It was far more pervasive. And the firm under pressure, you know, collapsed in 1990. So eight of us decided to leave altogether. And we went on to Payne Weber. Yeah. And in the process, I switched from re equity research investment banking. Right. So I want to talk about that, right? So in this progression, this progression of Stelios, you've gone from, okay, well, I want to do physics to sort of now a little bit more biophysics, actually a little more on the biology side, right. to analyzing companies, to then investing in them and eventually building them, right? Well, I... I mean, founding so, them for sure. So uh, equity research, investment banking is basically raising money for companies and advising companies to do M&A. Yeah. So that was my formal job from 87 until 13 years at Payne Weber and another six years at Cowan. Now, what happened, to come to the other point you just quickly mentioned, when I became an investment banker, uh, and I had to go out there and begin telling people basically how to run their business, CEOs, boards of directors, um, I felt a little bit intellectually dishonest um, as I would hope every young person should feel who goes out there with a nice suit and a briefcase at the age of 35 trying to tell a seasoned 60-year-old how to run their business. Yet most of them are shameless. They go there with a bunch of buzzwords and a nice book and say, well, you should buy this and sell this and all that with, with authority. So as I was doing this, I said, look, this is not this is not the right way. What do I know about all of this? Because you things? hadn't done it, right? You hadn't right. done that. Yeah. And, and I thought not having done it is, is a liability and, does, and, and puts me in a position of not having the experiential base and the moral authority to become the guru and the advisor. So I said, look, if I'm worth my weight... Uh, as an advisor, I should challenge myself to get in their shoes, to experience what they experience, and and then uh, come around and uh, and give them advice. In those days, regulatorily, you could do a lot more than you can do now. Yeah. So, starting in 1990, about three years after I was an investment banker, and 87 to 90, it was an interesting time because the market, October 19, 1987 was a severe crash in the market. The market was down significantly, 25%. Stocks, just, you know, everybody was running for cover. So it took a good three years for the market to recover. And during that time, there was very little activity. Very few finances were done in biotech. Given my history of the prior two years as an analyst, I knew most people on the buy side and had reasonably good relationships with them. So the very few deals that were done the vast majority I did, just personally going out yeah. there and talking to them. So it was good for building a base of, of activity and accomplishment. Uh, and it also gave me a chance to understand a little bit better the investment banking business. Starting in 1990, I said, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start thinking of why don't I come up with ideas that I think make sense uh, of my own or of other people and invest or co-invest or challenge myself to do startups um, and uh, see what I learned, see how good I am. 
put my own reputation, my own money, my own ideas at risk, and see what I learned from it. And that's how the startup phase of my career began. And uh, the first company that uh, I had a real hand in co-founding was Exelixis, which the dialogue began in 1991 when I met the founding scientists. And in 1993, I wrote them the first check. I still have the cancel check to pay some... uh, patent fees because they, they didn't have any more money you know, they spent all, all of their own money on it and then the next year uh, we raised a million dollars from a little bit from me from Payne Weber uh-huh. this was a good idea uh-huh. and a company called Creative Biomolecules Charlie Cohen was the CEO who immediately got the concept well this was a good company it's important to know Charlie and I are still on the board of the company yeah, to I know. this day yeah and they're still they're still around. They're doing well. They're yeah. doing very well. Finally, yeah, they've had uh, an up and down run. Yeah, that's for right. sure. So, um, and then the company kept on growing, um, and then subsequently, I co-founded a number of other companies, invested in other companies. Of course, what happened is, you know, a good ten years later, you know, haven't been on, um, uh, and then I also joined many other boards of younger companies, you know. Ten years later, I've been sat on many boards with many venture capitalists, many CEOs, having been through many crises, having solved many problems, having failed at solving other problems. You know, you develop a different relationship with people that ultimately become your clients. Uh-huh. Uh, they see a different side of you. They see you in sitting alongside with them trying to solve a problem rather than you coming in with a fancy suit trying to tell them, you know, pre-baked stuff and how good life is. And and that's a much stronger relationship. And I think it made me a much better investment banker, A, because I understood the business of my clients a lot better, and B, because it gave me far greater credibility with them because they saw me at an unsuspecting time, as I said before, solving problems alongside with them. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about this. So, when, when, so you're, you're the chairman of the board of Biogen still, is that right? Right. Right. So when that happens, are, are they bringing you onto the board because they know that you are wildly connected in the industry, right? So you, you have, you, you know, you've been, uh, well, you know, we just talked about all, all, all parts of your background. Or do they actually expect you to be in contact with them daily? Or, you know, how, how does that work? Well, the Biogen, the Biogen chapter is the most recent chapter of my life. And this came about in a different way. Um, in 2006, I retired from active investment banking. Yeah. So I'm no longer employed, you know, as of 2006. And uh, uh, what I did after 2006, I spent time uh, reading, speaking, talking to people, uh, still involved in a number of boards of directors, and doing what most people do who don't work for a living on a daily basis. In 2008, Biogen was under an activist attack by Carl Icahn. Uh And uh, one of the significant accusations uh, against the Biogen board is that they were not investor-friendly. They did not understand investor needs, investor mindset, uh, largely because their board of directors did not have enough, or any people for that matter, who really had some sensitivity of how investors think, feel, what the priorities are. Mm -hmm. And in the context uh, of the annual election of directors, uh, there were four uh, directors whose term was expiring. One had hit the age limit, so he could not run for re-election. The other three were running for re-election, so they need to replace that fourth person. And given that 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 was the criticism by the activists, they thought, why don't we bring somebody who investors may recognize as somebody with some investor credentials, if you wish. Yeah, but who also so they approached the industry. Me. Right, exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, not exactly. So they, they approached me, and I had conversations with the management team and each one of the other board members of Biogen. We all thought it was a good uh, fit, fit, yeah. and I was put on the ballot, and I was elected. And uh, uh, then at some point, four years, I'm sorry, six years later, I was elected in 2008, in 2014, when Bill Young, the then chairman, chose to retire, 
you know, the rest of the board uh, elected me as chairman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, the choice is based on... They chose me because I presume they felt I I knew enough about the business and I was probably prepared to spend the appropriate time and I was someone they could work with. And that's probably the reasons why people choose a chairman. I mean, so how, how much of the of your time does that take now? I mean, it's, it's hard to estimate because it's never a fixed amount per week. Yeah, but it does take time. Yeah. Biogen is a large, complicated yeah. company, yeah. so it does take time. Uh, let me. I want to ask you a couple of things, and they sort of deal with change. I think, right? Because you've, you know, we just went through this long history. Do you think it's easier to build a biotech company now than it was, or, or is it harder? I mean, you know, the the infrastructure's in place, more bankers, uh, more VCs, and the and the models, although they changed, are sort of been there. Right. Has that made it easier or harder? I think it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier in many ways. Uh, there are many, many, many more people today who know how to do things. First of all, the vast majority of academic scientists are already sensitized as to what, in the context of their work, might be commercially relevant, and they'll offer it up uh-huh. quickly to the venture capitalists as ideas for commercialization. Um, there is a very large group of very sophisticated venture capitalists who are fortified not just the partners themselves there, but they're fortified by a number of venture partners who are typically retired senior executives from pharma and on occasion, you know, Wall Street. Um, On occasion, they're senior academic people who have retired. So there's a lot of sophistication in the venture capital community. There is significantly more capital available today than ever before. And probably significantly more wisdom as to what to avoid in terms of mistakes. That's sure, the last yeah. thing I'm not as convinced of because I still see mistakes. Uh, there's also a group of people who've done it two or three times as senior executives and have some experience to do it again. Uh, of all things, probably the one, the one element that is glaringly improved is money. There's a lot more money. But I, I wonder if, so there's a lot more money, definitely, yeah. for sure. But there's a lot more people vying for it, too. I, I, I wonder, do you think the competition, if I'm starting a company, the competition to get that money is harder now than it was? Um, that's a very good question. Um, if you're not plugged into the system, I guess it's going to be very hard, yeah. I mean, I do hear that from, from people yeah. who are like, look, I have this great idea, and they're outside of the, the investing circle. Yeah. They're sort of like, how do, I, how do I get it, you know? Yeah, that's, it may well be that what they think is a great idea may not be a great idea. Also that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah they, they have to be part of the flow, the flow of information, the flow of ideas, uh, the circle of credibility. Um, that's that's a challenge, but that was always a challenge. Yeah, I want to ask you this too, because um, as you mentioned, you know, all these people who are becoming biotech analysts often they had this dual uh, background of of medicine yeah. or science and then right. the business right. angle. So, how important was the biophysics PhD to you to being a successful biotech analyst? And I'm asking that because when you look at a company, it seems to me, you tell me where I'm wrong. You know, you it's all it's all risk. It's all risk. But you can take away some of that risk with good management, with teams who've done it before. Um, but the but the biology is usually the hardest part to to actually forecast. Do you agree with that? Well, particularly in those days when we got started in the mid '80s, if you didn't understand the science, you couldn't do the job. It was going to be it was going to be very very difficult because those companies were just basically science. In fact. Um, Part of our challenge for all of us was that uh, we didn't know how to value those companies. And uh, I came up with a valuation model. I remember exactly where I came up with the idea. The upper level of 59th Street Bridge. <laughs> you know, the, the place with the grades when you drive, uh, you know, they make that little noise. I'm driving home, and it hit me. I said, you know what? I said, I'm agonizing over this for months and months. I said, I know, I know the answer. These companies... They're nothing different than all the academic labs I know very well. 
This is a bunch of guys who want to do science. And I know how to evaluate an academic lab. What's, what's a good academic lab? It's a place where you have very good people pursuing interesting problems, uh-huh. and they're well-funded. So if you, want to, if you want to handicap the likelihood of success of an academic lab, you evaluate the quality of the people, quality of the ideas, the amount of money. So that's the same way I should evaluate those companies. So I constructed a model that looked at companies by doing a qualitative assessment of their management, as I thought, their strategy, you know, and and, and this like, you know, how they fit into the overall scheme of things, and then a quantitative measure of how much money was being invested in the company, and whether it was from corporate partners or equity or whatever, some adjustments. And then I created that model, and I said to people, look, the money part is a quantitative algorithm that I'm doing, and I think it's fair. Leave that alone. Accept that. If you disagree with me on the management part, change the grades, and then put that together. Here's the framework, and then at minimum, this will show you outliers. You will see that within the group, that company, compared to its stock price within the context of the universe, that makes sense. Looks yeah. to be a de- in deviation of, of, of the mean and the median. Uh, and I published that model, you know, in 86. And it was the basic way by which I would talk to people on, on how to look for uh, uh, for potentially, you know, I mean, but good does investment that, opportunities. Does that suggest, it sort of suggests that, yes, the science is a crapshoot, but it's, it's all a crapshoot. Crap it's not a crapshoot. I mean, you, you tell me, but it seems like you can go, okay, well, we think this is going to work, but often you don't know till the phase three unveils itself, right? And then you see. Sure, but... Uh, it's not a question of, you know, any one experiment has a chance of success or failure, but by and large, smarter people make better choices. Smarter people, well-funded and given time, make even better choices. Yeah. It's not, it's not random. If it, if it were random, then, you know, no matter why we're doing it. No, agreed. And, but and I mean, in fact, look, that you touched upon a hugely important point. I mean, one we should spend a separate podcast talking about. But uh, uh, if you ask the question, you know, how do you compete in this business? I look at companies that are small companies. I give you an example. Nowadays, it's fashionable for companies to start as platform technologies. Mm-hmm. So they begin with some platform, any platform. Again, and then yeah. And then they're going to have a program in inflammation, a program in cancer, a program in neurology, you know, a program in dermatology. And they're all connected because the platform gives rise to all those things. And they intend to take, you know, these nascent programs, let's say, all the way to phase two and then find a partner. And I ask the question, how would you build the expertise to make the right choices in a clinical setting, in oncology, in, in all these indications, in yeah. Neurology. yeah, that's next to impossible for a small company, because I think at the end of the day, uh, there, there are views about risk diversification and expressions like shots on goal, which are widely misunderstood. So let me give you an example. Uh, we'll take Biogen as an example. Okay, so let's say Biogen is a company that is largely focused on neurology and adjacencies, as we call it, call it, say, ophthalmologies and adjacencies to neurologists. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say anything that's been touched by a nerve is, is part of our, of our remit. Let's assume that uh, we have a 1,000 scientists, which we don't have more, but let's say a company is a 1,000 scientists, and uh, you have the capacity to have 20 programs, in the clinic, are you better off having 10 oncology programs and 10 neurology programs or 20 neurology programs? Now, conventional wisdom would say, oh, neurology, oncology, that's risk diversification. My view is, no, not really, because if I am dividing my expertise in two areas, I'm losing intensity and depth. But if I'm concentrating in one area, I'm now becoming a little deeper, a little smarter. 
I know more. I know better the academic community. I know better the clinical community. I know the science better. I can avoid the pitfalls. I can do things just a little smarter. That competitive edge, the domain expertise, is going to help me make a smarter decision you know, a day earlier than the next guy. And that, at the end, could be the way you win in this competition. Yeah, yeah. So what is counterintuitive is the way to go about this, uh, so long as you understand how to avoid systematic risk. Systematic risk is if you're 20 neurology projects all challenging the same hypothesis. If I had 20 oncology projects on PARP inhibitors, well, if that don't work, then... Then, then everything's done. Then yeah. everything's done. Yeah. But if I had 20 oncology projects, you know, in immuno-oncology, in the microbiome, in TKIs, in, in PARP inhibitors, I don't have systematic risk. If I targeted different anatomical tumors, some heme, some solid, I don't have systematic risk. Actually, there's a challenge then. Can I develop the expertise all across those scientific disciplines and all across those tumor types that's just as challenging as, as other things. Most companies, smaller ones, who stay solid or liquid tumors. So domain expertise, in my mind, is the ultimate advantage you can have in this business, and you can do this through concentration. Risk diversification is misunderstood. In portfolio theory, you know, you understand risk diversification comes with numbers that are very high yeah. and on things where you understand how to eliminate systematic risk and other things. But that's not how you do this in science. Um, a couple things, and then I'll probably have to let you go. But, I, you, know, you know, so you've been in New York since when? When did you leave West Virginia? I didn't, uh, well, in West Virginia, I was there for school, but even yeah. then I was in New York working in restaurants. Oh, you were? Oh, in the summers so, and such? Yeah, okay. and, and, and even three-day holidays, I would fly and make a little money at Howard Johnson's. So did you... 67. <laughs> did you have Did you have family in New York? No, 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 I don't No, have you just you said no. there's a Greek community. I never did, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's a uh, that's you've known New York for a long time since '67. Yeah. yeah, I mean you've seen it when it was almost bankrupt and terrible. And you're probably driving a yeah. taxi through that. Yeah. Um, what do you make of it now? I love New York. I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. Why? I mean, uh, there the, a lot of things about New York I like. I like the vastness of it. I like the diversity of it. Uh, I'm very intrigued by ethnicity. Uh-huh. Um, different people, different cultures, different languages. It just, sometimes um, I don't tell my wife that I would aimlessly drive in the boroughs, just shift from neighbor to neighborhood from an Arab concentration in one place to a Jamaican, something else, just to watch other colors, the sounds, the faces change. Just, I, I love that part. I love the anonymity of New York. Um, nobody knows you here. Yeah. You have to go places where you expect I'll go certain restaurants that would know me, certain buildings, certain other places. But uh, if you want to avoid being known in Boston, you cannot avoid being known. If I go to Cambridge, yeah, you're gonna if I get to the shuttle yeah, yeah. to go to Boston, there's rarely a time that I'll be in the shuttle waiting to board another plane that will not know somebody yeah. because of the concentration. Yeah, and because they're constantly going um, back and forth. Uh, I love simple practical things. Um, access. You, you get on a plane to go anywhere in zero time. Do, do you think anything's... I'm asking, I think, for personal reasons, because I live here too, but do you think anything has been lost in the way that it has um, gotten richer and safer? I mean, obviously you vote for safer, uh, but the, the New York you knew in the 70s and even early 80s is long gone. Yeah. I I don't know because I'm long gone along with it, I can tell you. That, that may be the issue. I do remember in the 60s and 70s when I was young that I invented and discovered all the different ways to enjoy New York on nothing. I would go to Central Park and line up to get free tickets for Shakespeare in the park with a girlfriend and sit on a blanket and get a sandwich. And maybe it's still going on, maybe it's not, I don't know. But now I would not wait in line anywhere even if they paid me. So I'm lost. New York may not be lost, but I'm lost to those things. There are lots of other things that uh, were there, but uh, like I said, I, I, I don't know if, if that, that part of New York is lost. Yeah. I can tell you the other thing. I used to work in restaurants on Times Square in the 70s uh, when it was 
you know, the basement of the world. Yeah. Uh, I don't miss that yeah. part of New York. It was pretty nasty. I used to know the hookers by name. They would yeah. come into the restaurant. I was yeah. nice to them, and they were nice to me. Uh, um, but that was not a pleasant Times Square. Yeah. It, you know, people talk about the way neighborhoods change all the time. And they can go one of two ways. They can get better or worse. And when they're getting worse, no one enjoys it. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. I mean, I witnessed Astoria change over the last 50 years. Uh, and it's a, probably a good laboratory for change. Astoria, when I first came to New York, was a predominantly Italian neighborhood. Then the Greeks started moving in. And for a lot of these neighborhoods, say in Queens... Uh, they're transitional neighborhoods. You know, the first immigrants come maybe someplace of Manhattan yeah. or Queens. So in the time when there was significant Greek immigration uh, in the 60s and 70s, many would come to Astoria. As they do better professionally, financially, they move to the outer borders. And so long as there are new arrivals, the flux, influx, efflux, you know, uh, average out, yeah. and you have a constant number. If the influx reduces as the economy got better in Greece and uh, started borrowing more money from the European Union, started living a better life, there was no need to come here and work 18-hour days uh, and slave yourself. So they had a good life there. They stopped coming. Yet the ones here started still doing better yeah. and moving out. So the efflux overcame the influx, and uh, they started creating vacancies. So who filled the the empty uh, houses? For a while, it was Serbians, Yugoslavians that were coming in. Uh, and then those sort of quieted down. Uh, and as of late, the last few years, there's a huge amount of Arabic populations that have come in, Palestinians, Syrians, yeah. Lebanese. I mean, so there are still a couple of you know, Italian espresso joints on Steinway Street. There's a bocce court at the end of Steinway Street that you see a bunch of old Italian men play bocce, you know, in the afternoons. Uh-huh. Uh, still a whole lot of Greek restaurants, uh, but the Arabic influence is, is unmistakable. Yeah. And yeah. now, of course, maybe the latest influx into our story is the yuppies. You know, and all the Long Island City, all the high rise that are, that are going up, yep. that uh, people are moving into. So, is it better? Is it worse? I mean, I, I don't know. I suppose when neighborhoods are being abandoned and buildings are getting boarded up, that's a pretty bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, I, I, I've thought about this before um, since uh, the last time I saw you. But the last time I saw you, we finished a podcast, and uh, I, I think I said thanks for coming in or something, and you said, "No problem. I love this shit." And I thought, uh, and I thought, why? I mean, it's it's clear that you obviously love this industry. You've been in a long time. You've changed your focus. You've done all these angles. Um, why do you love it? Uh, I don't know why I love it, but uh, you write about. I'm, I may be one of very few. I don't know if I'm, I don't want to say the only, but one of one of very few people that has immersed himself, herself, or oneself. In, in this world as a stock analyst, as an investment banker, as a company founder, investor advisor, and so like senior board member executive you know, of companies over the space of now three, four decades. Um, I think what intrigues me the most and keeps me coming at this from different angles, what I find fascinating is, is this whole process of taking you know, a casual idea in the lab. Sometimes you sit with a cup of coffee and you say, gee, you know, how about this, about fruit flies? And then 25 years later, there's somebody with kidney cancer who responds to a drug. And that only happened because of this unique interplay of basic scientists, drug developers, clinical scientists, people betting money on stocks, um, people who build companies, regulators, uh, journalists, writers, movie makers. It's a fascinating laboratory that's multidisciplinary and highly complex. And all of this at the end is for something good. I mean, lives are saved, pain is relieved, 
I don't think there's anything more fascinating than this in life. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating stuff, you know, understanding string theory or whatever, that is, it's intellectually potentially satisfying, but it's hard to see the immediate positive effect, you know, on human life. Um, I think that's it. Excellent. Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. When are we going to do it again? I don't know. Well, we'll definitely have (laughs) you back. It's easy to do. Yeah. There it is. Your first rounders podcast with Stelios Papadopoulos. Uh, Boy, let's see. Um, Well, obviously, thanks, Stelios. He came into the studio, took the time. I always appreciate the effort. Great talk. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. And thanks to Johns Hopkins University and their MBEE program, Master of Biotechnology Enterprise and Entrepreneurship, for sponsoring this podcast. For more information, go to enterprise.jhu.edu. And um, what else can I say? I'll have another podcast out in short order, I think about within a month. I won't tell you who, um, but that's coming. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.